It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. 2010. Man, that just that seems odd to me. I, I can remember back when I was younger, I, I thought about what age I'd be when we hit the year 2000, and here we are in 2010 now, and um, starting to realize I'm not as much of a spring chicken as I used to be. I used to be one of those things where I looked at the curve and go, man, I'm way ahead of the curve here. I've got everything figured out. Now that I'm um, getting a little bit older, I don't think I have a lot of gray yet. Bo can tell you otherwise, but I I think I'm now part of the curve instead of being ahead of the curve. But welcome to the Money Guy Show. We are starting out a fresh new year here. This does make, let's see, we started this show back in 2006. We've got four complete years under our belts, so we're officially in our fifth year here of the Money Guy Show. If you want to check us out on the web, you can go to money-guy.com. You can also write the show directly. You can write me at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com. And I want to introduce, of course, my associate here at Preston in Cleveland. I got Bo Hanson. Bo, welcome to the new year. Happy New Year, guys. Hope all of y'all enjoyed the holidays. So I've had a lot going on, and I want to, because I know a lot of people probably got, I do this every year, a lot of people probably got new iPods, new iPhones, uh, touches, whatever, you know, MP3 player that that might be helping them out with their music, and they're, they're realizing, hey, besides music, there's also this great free resource that I can do called podcasting and they can um, go download us and I want to tell people if you're brand new and you you checked us out because maybe we're a featured podcast or you've heard word of mouth on us welcome to the show and what I'm trying to do here the whole purpose of this show is it was I call it my little Frankenstein project is that I started doing this back over four years ago now where I, um, I loved my gadgets loved my you know my my iPod at the time I've now progressed to the iPhone and I just realized this was one of those new technologies that was very powerful. And I had a, you know, I run a, by day, I'm not a, a broadcaster, is not my full-time job, but by day I am a fee-only financial planner down here on the south side of Atlanta. I'm a certified public accountant, a certified financial planner, and a personal financial specialist, which just means I'm a CPA that does financial planning. But I realized in my day job as a financial planner that there were a lot of people not being served. Um, a lot of financial advisors, including myself, we have minimums on, on the client relationships. And that's, that's both to protect the client because um, we, I don't want my fee impacting uh, the, the client's performance. And, and truthfully, we can't get paid what you know enough for the hours that we have to put into a plan unless you have a certain amount of assets. So I started realizing there's a whole group of people that were being neglected and not getting what I consider some of the best objective advice. So we started doing the Money Guy Show. And I, I basically threw it up against the wall, started giving out free advice, and then what do I know? It was um, my own field of dreams as people started showing up and listening, and we've gotten more popular more popular, and you guys are a big part of that. I truly appreciate your emails because I couldn't do it without your emails. I even, if you want to know what warms your heart is when you take a few weeks off like we did for the Christmas holidays um, as well as the, the new year, and then I get emails from you guys saying, hey, when are you coming back? You know, we missed the show. That I tell you, guys, thank you so much. You have no idea. I do read these emails, so it means a lot when you give us some, some attaboys, um, so it's not just always complaining, hey, Brian, can you change this? Can you fix this? Because, you know, it, it is nice to get compliments from time to time. Also, we um, the iTunes comments, I think, help us out tremendously. For So for all you guys that do that, thank you so much for doing that. So let's jump right in, because I know a lot of you guys, my good analytical listeners, kind of want the meat. They don't want a lot of this fluff, but um, I want to tell you what we're going to be talking about today, but then I also have to kind of backtrack and tell you 
what I've been doing for the last few weeks, because it is one of those things where I've missed you guys. I feel like I need to catch up and tell you what's been going on in our lives, um, both here at the firm as well as personally. And I can tell you what we're going to be talking about when I was, when I'm going to ease back into the topics with looking at, I was got my, you know, my annual subscription to Consumer Reports and in the February 2010 issue that just came out on um, they on their money section, they have a happy retirement, six steps that work. And I know these sometimes these, these numbered steps things can get kind of boring and mundane because they say the same thing over and over, no matter if you find them on Yahoo Finance, MSN, or Consumer Reports. But what I liked about the way Consumer Reports did it is that they actually included some survey data, meaning they actually went out there and interviewed a bunch of retirees to find out what made them happy or what were some of the differences. And then it even had some nice little boxes on the side that they had a little side notes that they had found when they did their research. So we're going to jump into that. Also, I've been reading kind of immersed uh, for Christmas. I've talked about this before, but I actually got it as a Christmas gift this year from my in-laws. Um, Dr. Stanley, Thomas Stanley, you know, the author for The Millionaire Next Door, he came out with a new book. I think that was September, October that he came out yep. with that book. I mean, it's been a few months, but but Dr. Stanley came out with a brand new book, and it's, t- it's titled Stop Acting Rich and Start Living Like a Real Millionaire. Now, I will tell you, it's very similar to The Millionaire Next Door, except he goes a step further. What Dr. Stanley does is, is that... Um, you know, in the millionaire next door, a millionaire is such a broad term nowadays. I, I will. This is this is my words, not his. By the way, this is not written. This is just what I took out of it. So I don't want to. I don't want Doctor Stanley to get this get this and information and be like, God, oh, I didn't say that. But this is what I take from it. I'm giving you my my interpretation. Is that Doctor Stanley has recognized that being a millionaire is such a broad thing nowadays. Uh, you know, back when that millionaire next door came out, it was a kind of a new novel. Um, idea to find out how millionaires live, but Dr. Stanley has probably even recognized that there's differences within the millionaire class, is that there's people who have over $20 million, who make over $2 million a year, that he titles the glimmering rich. You have the aspirationals, which are people who make good high incomes, but not necessarily aren't wealthy. Um, he goes into you know what the, makes the frugal millionaire. That's the person who doesn't make over two hundred thousand. Actually, makes probably less than six figures, but still somehow is able to accumulate a million dollars in their lifetime, which is a, a pretty incredible feat. Uh, you know, he got, he lays out their their lifestyle, and and what I like, it gets into all aspects of life. It, I mean, it, it even gets into the clothes you wear, the watches you wear, um, you know, wine cellars, you know, cars. I, I'm about halfway through the book right now, but I, I am just. It, it it really has helped me to kind of, you know, back up a lot of the ideas I have. And I think that's what books like this do. So I encourage you, you know, go check it out. And I'll tell you what I'm hoping. I had talked to Dr. Stanley back in October, September. It might have been actually August because I think it was before the book came out. I had written him asking him to come on the show, um, not even knowing he had a new book coming out. And he actually wrote me back. He said, yes, he'd love to come on the Money Guy show after his uh, new book was published. And I just have not followed up with him. Um, so I'm hoping, because I, also I wanted to be a good um, a, a good person who actually reads the book. I can't stand it when people do interviews and they actually haven't read the book, and you can tell they haven't read the person's book. So uh, uh, since I am such a big fan of Dr. Stanley's, I'm going to make sure I get this book read. I'm going to contact him and see if I can get him on the show. But um, I did want to kind of give you some insights. We're not going to devote a ton of time to the, the Stop Acting Rich, uh, because I want to probably, that's probably going to be a two-part show in the future where I'm going to actually give my thoughts on the entire book for a podcast and then we'll come back for another podcast where we actually 
interview Dr. Stanley. So, but what have I been doing? Um, I've been like you guys, probably visiting family. We traveled up to North Carolina to visit family out there. I know I have some um, relatives that listen because it cracks me up that um, this podcast is not only extended to you guys out there listening, my relatives have started listening to this thing because they all have iPhones and iPods and so forth. And it cracks me up that I have relatives out in Arizona that this is how they're keeping up with me. So I'll give a shout out to Scott and Grismar, as well as to Stacy up in North Carolina. I appreciate you guys listening. It makes me feel like um, maybe we, we're not the distance in so far between all of us, but you know, which, and it was good to see you guys over the holidays. But um, we also went over, I went on a cruise over um, New Year's, and that was great because I got to read a little bit of this book because it's hard to get time to read a lot. Um, and that was a lot of fun. So we have now gotten back into the the full course of work here. And it's kind of hit me. I'm probably a lot of you guys are the same way. And I've got that um, after Christmas blues because I know that there's really nothing going on except for work until probably April or May. So I'm gonna, we're going to keep working on things, put our nose to the ground and, and start working. Bo, you have any insight before we kind of jump into the, the meat of, of all this? No, I think uh, let's, let's go ahead and jump right in. Um, so... Just to review, we're talking about a happy retirement, six steps that work in the February 2010 Consumer Reports. And um, what, I, what makes this difference different is that, like I said, it goes into the survey. And what I thought was very interesting is they first start off the article talking about, yeah, 2008 was just dreadful, but then we had this nice comeback in 2009. And in that downturn of 2008, it goes in and talks about the, the median net worth decline was about 18%. Um, and then it goes on even further, and it says, for those that are still working, talking about people who are, who are you know, quasi-retired, meaning that they've retired, but they've gone back and worked a little bit, those people obviously are trying to make up some ground on their retirement because they actually lost 30% in the downturn. So that shows me that the, these guys were a good bit more aggressive. So it's um, it's one of those things that that they're trying to make catch up ground and sometimes when you take that risk it's a double-edged sword is yes you can make better returns but you can also give some back and and that's where you see that difference between 18 percent on the the entire group and 30 percent for those that are still working um and, and that's kind of led to some concern from a lot of these people that are in the retired you know arena or the quasi-retired where they're still working but um have have previously left where you know their primary career and a lot of those 23 percent really aren't sure they're going to be able to retire if they're still working. And then there's there's many, many others that are kind of concerned about the ability of their money to sustain them for many years to come. And that's, that's a valid concern. And that's one of the things that I, why I think this is an important article is because you can focus on what you need to do. And this isn't just for people who are older who are getting closer to retirement. I think you can take a lot of cues and, and get a clue from a lot of these things that are said in here if you're younger, because it does mention 20 and 30-year-olds in this article and some of the steps you need to be doing as a, as a young person to protect yourself. And I think this stuff is so important because I deal with it all the time um, where people come to me who have great careers. And th- this kind of ties into that Stop Acting Rich book that I'm going to be touching on in a minute. But people who have great careers, make great incomes, and I actually am pretty excited about meeting with them when because I, I you know I, I hear what they do, and, and, you, and you think these people are going to have some assets that you can help them out with, and then you find out that yeah they have a great income, but they have no retirement, no net worth because they haven't been saving money. They've been living the the life of you know buying now and then paying later, and and you know they're on this treadmill where they look very successful, but nothing has really happened. And I, I think this all ties in nicely because it shows you the importance 
of starting early. As a matter of fact, one of the key things it has on the front page is it says satisfied retirees planned early and lived within their means. Um, it goes on and it says only 19% of workers were highly satisfied with their retirement planning. Now, who do you think those 19% are? I'll go ahead and tell you who I think those 19% are. I think those 19% are, are probably listeners just like you guys. It's people who took a very active role in their personal finances. They didn't just let life happen to them. They actually took control, realized at a young age, hey, I need to start saving for myself because it's not going to be the government. Um, I can't count on you know the, some family member kicking off. I've got to do this on my own, so I'm going to focus on my personal finances at a young age. And that's where you see that 19% who, who feel very confident in their retirement. And I'm hoping we can give you the skill set. And I'm going to kind of add some things uh, that hopefully will add value to, to kind of give you some clues on what you can do with your own personal finances. It goes on, it says 24% of full-time retirees told us that they had to stop working because they were made to. And that's one of the things, I'm going to, one of the steps I'm going to talk about is that you got to make sure you have backup plans. And that's why you need to have a lot of flexibility and save early because you just never know what's going to happen. There could be health concerns. There could be, uh, you know, that they just decide at your office that you're not needed anymore. Nobody wants to talk about that, but that is something you have to kind of plan for. Bo, are you catching a cold over there? Because I'm, I'm hearing a lot of sniffing, coughing. No, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> okay. I am good. <laughs> just making sure you're holding up okay over there. Um, so I want to talk about also something that I thought was very interesting. It, is it talks about the discipline of saving. And how that discipline can, can bear fruit over time is because this made me think of my parents to a degree. It said, discipline bears fruit over time, our surveys confirmed. Those who began saving in their 30s had gains in net worth of almost 400000 more than those who started in their 50s and 60s. And that kind of fits the common sense analysis. Obviously, the earlier you start, the compounding interest is going to work in your favor. It goes on, it says, long-range planning allows more aggressive investing. And retirees who told us that they used that approach had a median net worth of more more than 200,000 over those who were more conservative. And my point for bringing this up that kind of grabbed me was, and, and it even goes even deeper later into the article, is that, you know, just saving. Saving is the hardest part of becoming financially independent. I tell people all the time is as long as you can figure out the, the saving side, that's the hardest part because that's the part that requires the discipline. But after that, you need to put that money to work. And I've given the story all the time of how my parents were incredible savers, and I think I've gotten some of my thriftiness from my parents and the great example they led for me. But I will tell you what I've learned from my parents is that they were great savers, but their only investment choice was always CDs. CDs were, you know, until I got into the industry, my parents' only idea of investing was CDs. And then, oh, by the way, there was that one stop where my dad got, you know, talked into by a cold call stockbroker to buy some stocks, individual stocks that were disastrous for him. But um, other than that, CDs were it. And, you know, and all that buying that cold call stock that um, the stockbroker called with, all that did was affirm to my father, yeah, he didn't need to be doing anything in the financial markets, which was very disappointing because I've told you now, the other side of the coin is my father-in-law. Now, he's my parents, as well as my in-laws, probably were very similar on the income scale. Neither one of them were um, six-figure families. But um, they, my father-in-law did much better, and the reason is he discovered this great fund called the Fidelity Magellan Fund at a very early stage in his saving process, and that, that made a huge difference. So, so my in-laws had much more independence financially than my parents, just because not because they were saving anymore, it's just because that money, instead of 
them working with their backs, their hands, their mind, that money was out there working for them. So I thought that was very intriguing when I, when I saw this part, that people who used a little more risk in their portfolio. Now, I'm going to moderate this a little later and talk to you about what I mean about risk. But those who, who did take a balanced approach where they didn't just go super conservative had net worths that were $200,000 greater than their peers who, who were just going conservative only. So I thought that was very interesting. Now, for my young listeners, for those in their 20s and 30s, the, the article goes on and, and it says the advice is pretty clear. Choose a career that has the potential for early financial success and find a job with a secure, defined benefit pension, or both if that job exists. Well, I have to throw a little, I have to interject. First of all, I do think, yes, try to find a career that has the potential for early financial success. And I think what that job is is something that you're passionate about. If you don't, don't just go chasing the money, because if you go chasing the money and do a career just because it pays well, I think you're going to be miserable. You really do need to look at your aptitudes and what you're good at in life. And if you have a passion for something, I think money really does follow. Um, without going on too much of a tangent, I can't help but throw it out there, because I told Bo one of the things I heard this morning on today's show was that Simon Cowell was leaving American Idol. And I thought he said something very profound that kind of hit me in the gut because it hit me exactly with what I think makes life work. Is that, and now realize, he was offered 140, supposedly $144 million to stay with American Idol. But his statement was, it is more fun becoming successful than it is being a success. I heard that on the Today Show. And it kind of hit me because I think that ties in directly with that whole going the road less traveled. I think that happiness, a lot of people think that rich people are just happy because of the money. I don't think that's the case. I think a lot of wealthy people are happy because they went that road less traveled, came out on the other side successful, and there's that sense of fulfillment, and the money is kind of a byproduct of that. And when you're happy and you're passionate about what you're doing, I do think that you can... um, it kind of just all happens for you. I mean, that's kind of, as I mentioned, this podcast was just something we did because we had a passion for educating listeners. And I had no idea I was going to get a lot of clients all over the country from this. I went into this completely with a different motivation and then was pleasantly rewarded. So I want to just throw that out to you guys. So I do agree with this, that you need to have a career that potentially that offers potential for early financial success but make sure it's something you're truly passionate about. Now I'll get back on topic and get away from the tangent. Bo, you want to add anything on that? Because I know we had, we had talked about that briefly this morning. No, I think that, um, I think that hits it right on. I think, um, cause I'm, I'm seeing that now with some of my friends who got a job straight out of school and then, um, it was a job they ended up hating driving to work at, you know, five in the morning, beating traffic. And then, uh, they're already done doing that a year two, three years later. And, um, they look back and say, what was I doing? I wasted those three years and now they're going and doing something they, that they enjoy doing. And, and I'll give Bo a compliment. I, you know, I told him, you know, so that you don't think that I'm Ebenezer Scrooge. During the holidays, I tried to get him to leave early, um, you know, for Christmas. And then I also the the New Year's Eve, I was like, go, you know, take off at you know at eleven noon, you know, right around eleven to noon. You know, I know you have things to do. Bo won't leave, and I know that that's not because he's trying to impress me. I think it's just because Bo has a passion for what he's doing, and and I think that that's that's going to pay off in the long term. And I, and I give him, a, I hope he doesn't turn too bright red over there. But that, that is a compliment. But uh, I don't think it's necessary because I do think there's a great balance between life and work, and you've got to make sure that you're having fun in the world too. But maybe work is fun. I think for Bo, which, oh absolutely, which is, which is good. Um, but I I do disagree a little bit. It says find a job with a secure. Defined benefit pension, 
those are like extinct dinosaurs. I don't think you, the only way you're going to find those is if you're a teacher or a government employee, there's not any private businesses that are really offering that. So uh, I think that, yeah, you can enter a career, maybe it is in, you know, in education or in government, but um, that that's your choice. Uh, you don't see those. That's a that's a that's kind of a, a rarity more than than part of the norm. It also says buy a home in which to build equity and invest early and in those early years relatively aggressively. Even respondents who started saving in their 40s had on average two hundred thirty thousand dollars more than those who started saving in their early 50s. So I thought that was that was quite interesting. Um, so let's actually get into these six steps now that I've kind of set the stage for it. Number one was live modestly, and that ties right into that millionaire next door or stop acting rich is that it doesn't matter what you've got going on. If you cannot spend less than you make, then you're going to be financially in trouble. And that's why the good rule of thumb, because I always have people, especially young people who are in their 20s and 30s, saying, you know, Brian, you know, can, should let's run a let's run a financial plan to figure out how much I need to be saving for retirement. And I, and I always tell them, I say, I can run that. I have all this great software that will do a lot of these Monte Carlo simulations and everything else. But if you really want to boil it down to what you need to be doing, because there's so many things that can change over that period of time, that 20 to, I mean, that 30 to really 20, 30 or 40 years, depending on how long you have left to work. So many variables can change, and 1% is going to make such a dramatic difference that those, a lot of times those projections, you know, they're going to give you a picture, but it, it, it's, not, it's not something you want to basically set your clock to because there's so many moving parts to it that, that you're really going to have a hard time saying, okay, this, this projection says I'm perfect, um, I'm going to be good with this forever. It doesn't work that way. So I think what you need to do is have kind of some guidelines of how you need to be living your life. And what I tell people, it used to be 10% was enough of your gross wages. And when I say gross, I mean before everything. I'm talking about before uh, you know, Social Security, before income taxes, before your health insurance. I'm talking about when you go in there with your boss or you're self-employed and you know what you make. That's your gross number. That's your big top-of-the-line number. You need to, In the past, it used to be just 10%, but that 10% was because of those great pensions that we had. So you were just going to subsidize your pension that was probably going to cover 60% of your wages anyway, and then you're going to have Social Security and that and that, that supplemental savings you had done with that 10%. Not enough anymore. Because of the, let's say, the shakiness of the, the future Social Security system, you know, with 2017, with it paying out more than it's taking in, there, there is some concern that they're, you know, you know what's going to happen. They're either going to have to raise taxes, which I think that will happen, or cut benefits, or do something of both. I think that that really is an option. So you have to make sure that you're saving more, and and that you know somewhere between that 15 to 20 percent. And if you can get to 20 percent, maybe you get that next pay raise. You know, when the economy starts improving, and you get that pay raise, go ahead and change. Don't change your lifestyle just because you're making more money. Increase those savings so that your lifestyle can change in retirement so that you have that financial independence that's going to be oh so needed in in the future so let's um so the good good you know guideline is 15 to 20 percent i'd prefer you to do 20 percent now a lot of you guys are going to say that's crazy that's insane if you can't do that yet let that be a goal that you're working towards make sure you're just saving something i can't stand to, to see young people um, or really anybody not saving something for retirement and then as you have income increases you know, go ahead and allocate that money to your future and not just to a, to a change in lifestyle because I think that's something that, that a lot of people do. Um, so live modestly. It says retirees who said they 
they were highly satisfied with their lives. 39% said that they, they did not spend beyond their means. So once again, I think that's a lot of you Money Guy listeners. It also says create a budget using store-bought software such as Quicken or free online services such as Yodalee Money Center, and you can go find that at Yodalee.com. Um, I'm actually a big fan. It's not in the article, but I'm a big fan, and I've, I've told Bo about it. He's just not ready to take the plunge until he says I give him another big pay raise. But um, I use PayTrust. It's um, you know PayTrust.com. It's owned by Intuit, which are the same people you, who do QuickBooks, TurboTax, and all that. Um, I like it because it's a bill pay service, meaning that all the bills are sent directly to PayTrust. I have rules set in place where if you know if, if you know my phone bill is under a certain amount of money, just pay it five days before it's due, and just send me an email telling me you're doing. That way you don't forget about your bills, and then it's great. Like yesterday, I've got my CD disc with all my bills, um, you know the PDFs of actually the scanned in copies of the bills, as well as all the payments I made for the year. Tell me that's not easy to run reports for income taxes when all that stuff is done. I th- I pay somewhere like 11 bucks a month. I think it's up to 12 or 13. If you ever figured out how much you spend on stamps each month, it pretty much pays for itself. I love it. Plus it goes out there and communicates with your bank account. You can go, you know, it's called Smart Balance where you can get it and it essentially balances your checkbook automatically because it knows which checks are outstanding. I used to be a huge QuickBooks fanatic. Well, Quicken fanatic. QuickBooks is um, more of a business thing, but Quicken, I used to input all my credit card transactions, all my my cash transactions, and it was a lot of work. And, you know, as, a, as I've developed in life and how I have children, a family that I've got to take care of, I just don't have the time to do that. When you come home, um, PayTrust has been a, a, a nice addition. Now, I get nothing for telling you that. I just, I, I can't, I, you know, if I can help somebody out there, I want to throw little tidbits out like PayTrust.com. Also, it goes on, it says, number two, maximize your savings. And I think this is ideal. You know, it kind of very nicely rides on the back of what I just previously said about starting, living early and then starting early for those young people. It says, Saving too little was a regret of 27% of dissatisfied retirees. So over a quarter of the people they talked to, there were a lot of them having a little bit of that only if I could have saved a little bit more. Woulda, shoulda, coulda. You know, this is don't let that be your mistake. Go ahead and make sure you're taking advantage of what's going on. And also, you know, when these downturns happen, that's actually an advantage for you. Um, you don't want to be buying in at all-time highs. It's kind of nice when things are getting beat up. I don't know what's going to happen to the markets um, completely going forward, but I can tell you that there's never a bad time to be saving for your future. Uh, it goes on and it talks about even if you don't have a defined benefit plan, regularly contributing to your 401k, 403b, IRA, or other investment vehicles do pay off. Um, and, and I'll tell you, I've, I've said this, and I know all my long-time listeners can probably practically recite it you know, word by word, but if I set you up a table outside of your office and put some bags of money, and I said, hey, by the way, on your way home tonight, pick up that bag of money. Um, that's yours to keep. Everybody out there listening right now would not walk out of that office without picking up that bag of, of, of money. But a lot of you guys are walking away from that money because you're not taking advantage of your company match. If your company offers a dollar-for-dollar match or 50 cents on the dollar type match, that is free money. That's rates of return that you're not going to get. Um, it's it, You're crazy not to take advantage of that. So I would strongly encourage you to maximize your savings, including taking advantage of your your employer's match. Don't you agree with that, Bo? Absolutely, 100%. Um, reduce debt. 
That's number three. It says 38% of retirees owe $25,000 or more on their mortgages, but 74% of retired respondents who were free of major debt reported being highly satisfied with their retirement. So it seems like a lot of people, and I'll tell you, that's what we recommend. Before anybody retires, I would like you to be debt-free or as close to debt-free as possible because in this kind of, I'm, I'm kind of giving away a little bit on number six, but I say so many things are not just all about the numbers. It's also, there, there's so many things going on when you retire that it's not just about the analytical calculations. So being debt-free can definitely give you some peace of mind that is priceless. So I, I would encourage you to think about the debt, reduce debt. Re debt-free retirees had a higher median net worth as well. Those with, with debt, um, if you think about people who are debt-free, that their average net worth, according to Consumer Reports, was 843000 compared to those who were carrying debt, was at $717,000. Um, it also says, in the current economic environment, accelerating payments of your mortgage can be a wise investment. So most cer certificates of deposit, bank accounts, and other safe savings vehicles are paying less than 2%. Um, a lot of them are paying less than a quarter of a percent. So make sure you're... You're looking at that. Now, you know, I'll tell you a little side story is that I had lunch with a developer probably about a month ago, and um, we were talking about, you know, you can't help but do what I do for a living, and a lot of people will talk to you about personal finance. And we got somehow on the topic of debt, and I knew that he was, you know, he's like most people in the real estate industry, is that debt is their friend. Leverage is what you want. And I mentioned to him that I'm on the path to try to be completely debt-free meaning my house. Now, all my cars and all that stuff is already paid for. We, I use credit cards, but I pay them off on a monthly basis. But I do have a mortgage. But I'm in the process of having, I have a 15-year mortgage that I've actually figured out the amortization schedule to have it paid off within 10 years. And I, and I shared this with um, this developer, and he told me, he, he, he was like, really? He goes, I think, you, you know, why would you do that when you go invest that money? And I know there's a lot of you out there that are probably thinking the exact same thing. But the way I look at it, and this is something that I tell to a lot of my doctors that are clients as well as other people who have good incomes, is, is that when you have a good income, why do you have to swing for home runs? You know, that's the thing is that you're going to be successful unless you do something to screw it up. I mean, you, you, as long as you do what I told you with saving the 15 to 20%, you pay down your debt aggressively. How could you not be successful unless you have done something so bad to foul it up? And, and that's what, you know, and I told him, I, I said, I, I told this developer, I said, I have yet to find one person who, when they're describing to me the mistakes they made in their financial lives, who said, you know what? I screwed up. I paid off that debt so early. I shouldn't have done that. I should have invested. I have yet to find, and I'm sure that probably somebody's going to write me and say, Brian, I went out there and I... You know, I mortgaged my house, bought Apple stock, and I've made a fortune, and I'm laughing all the way all the way to the bank. But it doesn't work that way typically. I think there's a great peace of mind that comes with being debt free. And if you have a high enough income that you can save for retirement, but still have some extra money, why not go ahead and aggressively pay down the debt too? And I know you go pass up. A lot of people say you go pass up on that tax deduction, but I will tell you, those tax deductions aren't always so great, especially with alternative minimum tax. And then, you know, the, the standard deduction has gotten to the point where if you're a married filing, you know, it's 11000 bucks is not the, the end of the world. You know, a little over eleven grand for the, the standard deduction, then you get to put your exemptions on top of that. It's not the worst thing in the world. Yeah, you're giving back some of that, that tax deduction, 
But the peace of mind, I think, is priceless, especially as we enter economic times where who knows what's going to happen with all these government obligations and all the other stuff. So, you know, if, you, if you're taking that mentality of, of covering it on both sides or you're investing so that if the economy does recover well, you're covered that way, but you're also protecting yourself in case things get a little scary, at least you're going to be on, on firmer ground because you're not going to be at the mercy of whatever debt you've got sitting out there. It also says paying off your mortgage in this Consumer Reports article. It gives an example. It says adding $100 per month to your payments on a 30-year, $150,000 mortgage with a fixed rate of 5% reduces the total interest by almost $35,000 and cuts the loan term to six and a half years. Number four, now, I think this is a big one, and I'm, I'm just looking at the clock and realizing we're already over 30 minutes, so you can tell it's been a while because I'm, I'm excited to talk to you and carrying this thing on a little while. Number four is don't invest too conservatively. I kind of hit on my parents' situation, how the CD was the best investment they had, but let's put some numbers on it. It says median net worth for retirees who said they took a middle-of-the-road approach was 836000 versus 671000 for conservative investors. So, you know, that's, that's a little over $150,000 difference. What was very interesting about this article, because it goes on a little further, it says a $57,000 advantage for the more aggressive. So people who took on more risk than the middle-of-the-road balance type approach only reported a $57,000 increase. So I think they're, you know, you're not necessarily getting a great premium for taking too much risk because I tell prospects all the time when they come to me and they say, Brian, I can handle, I have the risk tolerance of a young person. I can handle it. I always say, wait a minute. It's not just all risk tolerance. It's also what's called risk capacity, how much you can handle and recover. Risk capacity discovers, you know, talks about how much you can um, handle on the recovery. You know, if it's going to take you 10 years to recover the money you lost because you took too much risk with your high risk tolerance, then you don't have the risk capacity if you're in your 70s. So you don't, you want to make sure, even if you can handle the risk, that you have an allocation that reflects your goals and the capacity for you to recover if you ever get into some, some bad situations. It goes on and it says, stud, number five is study your options. And that's just, you know, you never know. Health issues, um, you know, an employer that decides to downsize or get out of the industry. I happened to my father. That's kind of what put me on the path to becoming self-employed was watching my father in his late 40s get um, the, an industry uh, company decide, a Fortune 500 company decide they just want to get out of a business altogether. Um, so they dropped um, the, the, what he was doing, and um, he had to go, you know, essentially take a lesser job. And that was kind of hard for somebody who'd worked at, for a company for over 20 years. And then in your late 40s, when you're not feeling so... Um, marketable because you're hoping that you can stay and retire from that company. So you need to make sure you study your options. And that's where you need to look at health insurance and other things. I know there's a lot of discussion on that, but it says you can, you know, for health care coverage, since that's going to be a big question for a lot of you, you can hopefully either get on your spouse's insurance plan, find a new job with health benefits, benefits, extend your own employee coverage under the COBRA law, which, you know, it used to be 18 months. Did that get extended? I, I don't, I'm not sure. I know I know 18 is what it was. I don't know if that's changed. That might have been extended. You can go, they give a website. It says you can go to the DOL, Department of Labor, .gov, um, to, and just put COBRA in the search box and it will give you details. So that might have been extended. I probably need to go read up on that before I, I start talking about it and, and telling you guys something that's not completely correct. It also says look for private health insurance. If you go the private health insurance route, try to get group coverage through professional or other membership associations. Um, that probably is going to be the best way to get that coverage. Number six, now the last one, 
which kind of gives me vindication because I talk about this all the time with prospects as well as current clients. It's not always about the money. They, they titled it, Take the Intangibles Seriously. It says, stress affected overall satisfaction in retirement even more directly than net worth. Our survey found a quarter of retirees cited non-monetary stresses such as family relations, poor health, a loss of identity, and boredom. Think about that. You know, you retire. Before you retire, you feel like if you get in a situation, you can always work your way out of it. When you retire, you don't have that. You're kind of at the mercy of what's going on with the financial markets and your surroundings. So there's a lot of stress that comes with that. So definitely take into account the intangibles. It's not always about the analytical calculation. You need to take into account what you can handle. And that's why that whole debt-free discussion is so important. And then the last thing up before we just briefly, because I mean, we're already at over 30 minutes, is it, it has a nice little sidebar that says the case for diversification. And what I thought was very cool, really good about this um, was it said, it had a little, a little narrative. It said, those who invested in three or fewer investments had a medium net worth of 496000 compared with 861000 for those with four to six investment classes. And when we're talking about investment classes, we're talking about not just stocks and bonds. We're talking about mutual funds, real estate, you know, commodities. You can get into international stuff. You can get into long, short mutual funds. There's so many different asset classes you can get into. And it just shows you, uh, you know, when you get into these dire situations where the market went down like it did in 2008, it sure is nice to have investments that act differently so that not everybody goes the same way. You know, you want to have some bonds, but but you can also have diversification within the same asset class. And they give the example that in the 1991-92 recoveries that were pretty slow, if you'd have just been buying treasury bills, which are short-term government bonds, you know, the, the three-month T-bills, were only yielding about 1.9% a year. But if you'd have gone with T-bonds, which are the long-term government securities, you would have averaged over that, that two-year period 27.5%. So there's huge difference they're even within the same asset class. So governmental bonds, you can have different sources. So you want to spread yourself out. And that's where, you know, and I'll go ahead and give a, a little plug for us is that, you know, anybody out there listening that, you know, has been doing this on your own. And you maybe you've made a little bit of money back in 2009 or you missed it because you got scared and sold out in 2008, but you were successful before all this happened. You know, and you like what you hear from us. You feel like you know myself and Bo, because of the Money Guy Show, give us a call. We love we love picking up clients from the podcast. I mean, I we have built some tremendous relationships out there. Met some very uh, some people I think that have enriched our lives because you know it's great when you meet people from different geographic regions as well. Just because we can share ideas, because I think we all get kind of caught up in our own little bubble world, and it's nice having that input, and technology's made it where the distance really is not that big of a deal anymore. So um, I want to throw that out there. The, the Stop Acting Rich, I think I've kind of already touched on a lot of this stuff um, when we were going over the six retirement steps because it all was interrelated. It, it truly is amazing. I would just tell you, I thought it was very interesting when he talks about the glittering rich because that's exactly what I think a lot of us are trying to emulate. We're trying to emulate the behavior of the people. Uh, you know, it's so old school. People like Bo probably haven't even heard it, but the Robin Leach um, lifestyles of the rich and famous, you know, we're all trying to be the Paris Hilton's or, or the Rodeo Drive type lifestyle. And that's not that's not what it's all about. I think, um, you know, if you can save enough at a young enough age, you can have that lifestyle if you become that glittering rich. And I, and I think that's not something you shoot for. It's just kind of a byproduct of success. And, and I thought 
what I thought Thomas Stanley, Dr. Stanley did that was very nice this time is that he even goes through and he, he describes those people who are worth over $20 million and he talks about their lifestyle and how he's come to respect that they truly are living not much different than the frugal millionaires and the fact that they are living below their means because once you get to that glittering rich status, yeah, they can afford to buy that stuff. The people who are really faking it and causing themselves the most destructive harm are the people who, yeah, might have a great income. Maybe you do make $250,000, dollars $400,000 a year, but you don't have a net worth that reflects it, then you are doing yourself no good by trying to look like that that peer who might be a little ahead of you in the game. And you just have to, I realize at a long, young age, doing what I do for a living and having friends that come from family money, is there's always going to be somebody with more money than you. So it's not even worth trying to keep up with them. The biggest thing is just trying to make sure you understand the importance of family, happiness, and, and taking care of yourself, living below your means, and and you know and not trying to to show out because I think that's the biggest thing. If you ever want to know, you know, transforming income into wealth, where you should be, because a lot of people are probably sitting out there right now saying, "Okay, Brian, that's great, but how do I fall within this whole wealth spectrum?" And I want to go ahead and I'm going to give you one of the greatest tools that I think Dr. Stanley puts in the book is he gives you how you can figure out if you're what's considered affluent based upon your age and your income level. And it's a very easy equation. What it is is you take and you multiply, you take 10% of your age. So I'm 36, so you take 10% of 36 is 3.6. Multiply that by your gross annual income, and then that number is your expected net worth. If your net worth is over that expected number, according to Dr. Stanley, you are affluent among your peers. So I, I want to kind of throw that out there because that's it's a very it's a great thing that you can do to kind of give you a, a snapshot of where you are on your financial independence. Now, what I do, I want to make sure I, I throw this out there because I think for younger investors, uh, we were I was playing around with Bo's numbers because let's face it, I know what Bo makes for a living. I know how old Bo is. And it's not fair to younger investors like Bo who have only been out of school for a few years because you just haven't had enough time for your assets to gain traction. I always talk about that $200,000 level when I'm talking about you've got to get your, you got to, your biggest thing when you're young is to save, 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 save so that you can get your assets up to a point where that compounding interest really does make a difference. And for a person that's only been out of school for two years, that, that equation is not going to be fair to you. But I think for the people who are in their 30s, if you don't reach that, if you're not exceeding that expected number, you might want to take a cold, hard look at your lifestyle and figure out what you can do. Because I think once you do reach your 30s, this should be working for you, this equation. So go check it out. It's 10% of your age by your income, and that's your expected net worth. And it's a very interesting calculation. It can be very sobering. But I think the quicker you can realize these things, the quicker you can get on the right track to building that financial independence that can give you the happiness to know you can do whatever you want. And that's what you're ultimately trying to do is so you can spend more time with your family, do the things that are important. And um, I hope you guys have enjoyed the first show back from the break. Um, I am your host, Brian Preston. Bo, do you have anything you want to say to close it out? Or I think, um, I think the, the one thing that I tell all my friends is I would much rather be rich than look rich. And I think if we all kind of took on that mindset, we'd all be a lot better off in the end. Yeah, and, and that's what, you know, one of the things that and you, you, what you're saying that hits on something that Dr. Stanley mentions in the book, too, is that if you talk to the people who are truly successful, the money is not their, you know, the, the, the toys 
and the, the, the fixtures and the other things that they put around them are not what they're most proud of. What they're most proud of is being respect, respected in their industry and getting accolades from business and other things. And I think that, that ties kind of very similar to what Bo's talking about is that being wealthy or having that financial independence is so much more important than just looking the part. Looking the part when it's and you're faking it is not going to be a good situation for you in the long term. And a lot of us, I guarantee you, everybody out there either has a friend, relative, or somebody they know that is faking success, and you're looking at them and going, that's not where I want to be. And I just want to encourage you, take some of this advice we give him. We're going to get into some harder-hitting stuff even um, in, in the coming months. But I want to thank you guys for listening to the Money Guy Show. Go check us out, money-guy.com, as if you want to go get show notes to get all this data. But give us our con- give us your feedback as well at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com as well. And we'll talk to you in about two weeks. I'm your host, Brian Preston. The Money Guy Podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. And Brian Preston is a partner with Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.